can be seated. We are continuing the series that we began two weeks ago called A Healthy Community of Love, which is examining the traits and practices uh, that enable and sustain healthy communities in Christ. And our goal in digging into these texts and this material, which we are also doing through our Lenten Discipleship Institute, is to grow to greater degrees of health as a church body. That means growing and dealing with sin in a godly way and faithfully expressing Christ-like love in our relationships. So over the last two weeks, we have considered two central truths about disciples of Jesus that form the foundation of any healthy Christian community or healthy church. First, as we saw in Galatians 2 in the first week, is the reality of the love of Christ, that Christ loved us and gave himself for us, that to live the way of Christian discipleship, to live the way of the cross, we must be rooted and grounded in love and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. This is the foundation of any growth in the Christian life. Everything begins here. It is the foundation of health in the life of God's people. Second, last week, we looked at Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 7 and saw that as we approach the reality of sin in the community and seek to deal with sin in godly ways and not in fleshly ways, that we do so not with a critical, exacting, judgmental spirit that arises out of a sense of self-righteousness, but we approach sin and deal with sin together as those who know the log in our own eye is and was a bigger problem than the speck in our brother's eye. That is, we deal with sin as humble fellow sinners, and we always do so from alongside or even below our brothers and sisters and never from above. So with this foundation, as beloved sinners rescued by the grace of God, with that foundation in place, over the next several weeks, we are turning to consider and examine some of the more specific practices of these beloved sinners that shape and sustain healthy Christian communities. And we begin today with the importance and the priority of right relationships. Right relationships. Sin, which every church deals with, sin fractures relationships in every church. But healthy communities of love are committed to dealing with those fractures and pursuing reconciliation with one another as an urgent matter of first importance. And this makes sense, doesn't it? If the church, as we've talked about, is an amalgamation of relationships, which it is, then its health is going to be correlated to the health of those relationships, the relationships that make up the church family. Where those relationships are out of sorts, the church will be out of sorts. And where those relationships are right with one another, then the church, by definition, will be right with one another. So it's no surprise that Jesus teaches explicitly on the priority and urgency of this task of right relationship. In fact, he gives this topic first position in his most well-known sermon as he teaches on kingdom ethics, the Sermon on the Mount that we were in last week in chapter 7. We're going to be in it this week in chapter 5. But in verses 21 to 48 of chapter 5, at the opening of this sermon, Jesus offers authoritative teaching with six antitheses. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. 
And that is a strong, declarative, authoritative statement of teaching. Jesus is not, in the words of one New Testament scholar, this is not a new contribution to exegetical debate. Rather, this is a definitive declaration of the will of God that Jesus is giving in his teaching here. Here is the Messiah. Here is the new Moses. And Matthew is clear to present Jesus as the Messiah, as the new Moses, now giving his authoritative teaching on the will of God for his people, on the way of the kingdom. And the first of his antitheses deals with this topic of right relationships among his followers. So it matters. Jesus makes this a priority and an emphasis by beginning in this way. We're going to examine chapter 5 verses 21 through 26 in Matthew and we'll do so in three sections and then I want to conclude with some practical observations and considerations about reconciliation. So first, Jesus deals with our heart and attitude toward others. Second, he emphasizes the priority of pursuing right relationship or reconciliation. And then third, he speaks to the urgency of being reconciled. So first, let's start with the attitude of the heart. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now in in this verse, Jesus is just repeating what everybody already knows. From the Old Testament, he's quoting the sixth commandment, which we heard out of Exodus 20 earlier in our service. And then he summarizes the accepted teaching about the consequences of murder. You will be liable to judgment. That's a standard summary of Old Testament teaching about judgment for murder, which is the loss of one's own life. And it comes out of passages like Deuteronomy 19, Numbers 35, all the way back in Genesis 9, verses 6 and 7, and then in Exodus 21 as well. To take the life of someone means that your own life will be taken from you. And that's Jesus saying this, you'll be liable to judgment. That's a summary statement of what he and his audience would know. But in verse 22, he begins to shift. And he takes this from the external, which Jesus does. I mean, the work that Jesus does in our lives is not primarily the work that we can see. Although, of course, Jesus says, you'll know the tree by its fruit. That matters. But Jesus is in the business of doing work in the heart. He's in the business of working on the things that are invisible that we cannot see. That's his primary territory. Because when he's won over and done his work there, it will manifest itself in the outward actions. So Jesus begins to go to the heart. But I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then he continues. He moves these three different scenarios. So there's anger, angry with his brother, then whoever insults his brother, that's actually saying raka, which is an Aramaic word that means empty, and it's likely an insult, empty-headed or numbskull, we might say. It's an insult to one's brother. And then you fool, which again is a dismissive term, insulting one's brother or sister. And these are three different ways that Jesus is illustrating a dismissive and destructive attitude toward others that he says is off-limits to his disciples. And in some sense, we're not at the new feature of his teaching just yet because this was actually contained in Old Testament law. As the Old Testament expands on the Ten Commandments, and particularly the Sixth sixth Commandment, it gets into the matters of the heart. So Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18 begin this way, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. And then ends with a passage we all know, even if we don't know we know it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So already in in the Old Testament, already in the Torah, the expansion of this commandment is going to the matters of the heart that are, are behind the act, the outward act of murder. That there's something that exists inside of us that God is already saying, that's off limits to you. You can't hate your brother in your heart. 
So what is unique then, and shocking actually, about Jesus' teaching in verse 22, is that Jesus is putting this heart attitude that is wrong and broken on the same level in terms of incurring divine judgment as the act of murder itself. That's shocking. He gives three different penalties for the three things that he mentions, liable to judgment, liable to the council, and then liable to the hell of fire. And each of these, I think rightly understood, is pointing us to ultimate divine judgment, that God will scrutinize our inner attitudes and we will be held accountable for them. If we harbor an attitude toward our brother or sister in Jesus that is dismissive and destructive, if we harbor anger that merely wants to destroy and tear down, Jesus is teaching here that we will be liable to divine judgment. And that's sobering. That's sobering. So we should ask ourselves, in light of this, these opening two verses, what is the attitude of our heart toward those in the community of God's people? And I might want to tweak it in just this way and say, what is the attitude of our heart toward those in the community of God's people who have hurt us, critiqued us, sinned against us, made life difficult for us, opposed us? Is it one of wanting to tear down? Of harboring a seething kind of anger and dismissiveness? The temptation to an attitude that is characterized by anger, insult, and dismissal is real and close within each one of us. Karl Barth said this, he said, in most of us, the murderer is suppressed and chained, possibly by the command of God or possibly by no more than circumstances, convention, or fear of punishment. Yet he is very much alive in his cage and ready to leap out at any time. It's a bit of an exaggerated statement, but I think it lands, doesn't it? We know that it often doesn't take much for that to get stoked, for us to poke the bear, so to speak, and things can begin to pour out of us that reflect an anger that's lurking inside. And Jesus is saying to his followers, look, instead of a destructive and dismissive attitude, the call on our lives as his people, as beloved children of his father, is to take up an attitude that aims for the flourishing and well-being of all of our brothers and sisters, including those who have grieved us, wronged us, and sinned against us. And I might say even especially. In his reflections on the sixth commandment, Calvin says this, he says that it includes the requirement that we give our neighbor's life, our neighbor's life, all the help that we can. God wills that the brother's life be dear and precious to us. He require those requires those duties of love which can apply to its preservation. This commandment, rightly understood, is a commandment not just to not take the life of your brother or sister away, but it is a commandment to promote the well-being and flourishing of your brother or sister. And we are called to have this disposition of the heart even toward those who have hurt us, those who have harmed us, who have sinned against us. And let's think about it. If we can trust that that kind of heart exists in one another in the Christian community, even in the most difficult and challenging of situations, isn't it reassuring to know that the person that you're upset with or who's upset with you that you're going to work some things out with actually longs for your good and well-being because they follow Jesus? Jesus. 
It's tremendously encouraging if we can trust that. And in light of this, we have to take an honest look at our own hearts. Because to think that we can harbor within an attitude of anger and dismissiveness and destruction toward our brother or sister and still be faithful to the Lord Jesus is to miss the plain and clear teaching of the New Testament. Consider 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Or consider James 3, 9 and 10. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. What is your heart, heart's disposition toward your brothers and sisters in the Christian community? So let's move on to verses 23 and 24, our second point, which is the priority of reconciliation. Because Jesus, having addressed the heart and having exposed that with some sobering words, he next then teaches the antidote to anger or this disposition of destruction and we call it reconciliation. Instead of being at odds, instead of letting the bitterness and anger grow, Jesus says, be reconciled. And reconciliation quite simply means the exchange of hostility in a relationship for peace. Make peace. And Jesus says, this is a matter of first importance. It is a matter of priority. So verse 23, look with me at the text. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now let's picture this. You're in the court of the priests, the inner court in the temple precincts in Jerusalem. You have brought an animal for slaughter. Let's remember too that Jesus is teaching now in Galilee and his disciples would be 80 miles away from Jerusalem. That's a, at least a three days walk to get there. So you've taken a lot of effort and time out of work and everything else to go be there. You've slaughtered an animal and you're in the midst of this significant act of worship of being rightly reconciled to God, your, your king. And you're, you're there at the altar with all of this going on. And in the midst of this, you remember, it comes to mind. That your brother has something against you. That your brother has something against you. This, of course, is to say nothing of never forgetting that fact and still coming to the temple, which I think might be more likely for most of us. But you remember, what does Jesus say, verse 24, that you are to do? Leave your gift before the altar and go. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. There's a bit of hyperbole here because of the Galilean context. So far to go there and come. By the time you got back, you know, the whole act would have been over long ago. It would have taken you a week. But Jesus is saying, don't set out on acts of worship, acts of expressing your reconciliation with God when you are unreconciled with your brother, when your brother has something against you. It sounds extreme, doesn't it? 
And it is. It's meant to be. It's Jesus' way of saying to us as his followers, this matters. This really matters. This really, really matters. That if we get this wrong, if we turn a blind eye to this, that we are missing something so deeply significant to his kingdom work that it changes even our seemingly acts of religious devotion. That to come to church each Sunday and to put our money in the offering plate and to pray zealous prayers filled with passion and to sing hymns and songs with gusto and to serve the children in Sunday school and to partake in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that signifies that we are one body because we share in one bread. To do all of this while you know that your brother or sister has something against you is not right in his kingdom work. And God is not pleased. First, he says, first, be reconciled to your brother. That is the priority. That's what he wants us to do first. And then come and offer your gift on the altar. The priority of reconciliation, of right relationship, could not be stated with more strength and oomph to the people of God than it is by our Lord here at the beginning of his greatest sermon. Therefore, it matters. It matters. False piety is a target throughout God's relationship with his people. We read Isaiah 58 this last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday here. That's a great example the people of God partaking in a fast, but ignoring the demands of justice in their society. And perhaps most famously, we hear Samuel say to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, in words that would echo throughout the prophets that come after Samuel to God's people, to obey, to obey is better than sacrifice. To do the will of my father is better than to offer religious acts of devotion. This is what I want, God is saying from his people. If we pray together, give together, serve together while harboring anger, a disposition of destruction toward our brother in our hearts, remaining unreconciled with one another, then God is saying, stop your worship and get right. This matters. And it shouldn't surprise us, right, that this matters, that this is a matter of first importance in the people of God, in the kingdom of God. Why? Because the church, Jesus says, is to be known for how we love one another. That's how we're to be known as the disciples of Jesus. That's how we're to be distinct in the world. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim to the world has at its heart the message of reconciliation. First, of course, and essentially reconciliation with our Father in heaven that is true that every one of us needs. But as a, a result of that reconciliation with one another. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And out of this, God is creating one new humanity in his son Jesus. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. It doesn't matter who you are, but you're brought into the oneness that is now existing in Christ. This is our gospel, and it is to be displayed to the world. This is our witness. And if we are broken, if we are unreconciled, if we are going through the motions of religious observance and duty and piety without genuinely having the heart of reconciliation with one another and working on that together, then our witness is broken. And it just doesn't work. 
It's as if in the lack of reconciliation, someone has taken a rod of iron and shoved it through the wheel and everything just breaks. Because this matters. We are to be reconciled. Is it any wonder as Christian worship has developed throughout the centuries that at the heart of Christian worship, and it is an act that we do week after week together, we pass the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ, Paul says, rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace. Colossians 3. It's at the heart of who we are called to be. First be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. Let's move to the third point, verses 25 and 26, and much more briefly in this case, because I want to get to some application, but... Uh, Jesus uses this little short parable in verses 25 and 26, and he uses it to communicate not just priority of reconciliation, but urgency, urgency. And the key words in verses 25 and 26 are the first four in our text, come to terms quickly. Come to terms quickly with your accuser when you're on your way, going with him to court. Again, it's a kind of hyperbolic situation. At this point, everybody's been summoned. Everybody's coming. It'd almost be like calling off your wedding. No, it's come to terms quickly on the day of it. This is all happening, but Jesus is saying, no, no, quickly. Deal with this situation with your accuser. Be reconciled. Lest you be turned over to the judge. The judge turns you over to the guard. The guard throws you in prison. And I tell you, he says, those are strong words. And they're sobering. Again, sobering words. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's a warning. That for those who will not do the work of reconciliation, there awaits genuine divine judgment. And this parallel passage, when this parable is used in Luke chapter 12, that is clearly the theme of that chapter. It's about the end of time when God will judge. And in the context already of verse 22, with warnings of divine judgment around the attitudes of the heart, it's right to see that same warning here. That that judgment will be meted out on those who fail to take broken relationships as urgent and serious matters in the body of Christ. So don't drag your feet, Jesus is saying. This is urgent. Don't put this off. Come to terms quickly in these matters with your brothers and sisters. And let me say this. Having said that, there are, of course, nuances here, such as there are situations where time does need to be taken, where one person's commitment to urgently resolving the matter is experienced by the other, often the offended party, as just further violence against that person. And we need to be aware of that. And then, of course, there are matters of very serious harm, like abuse, where every step must be taken to protect and care for the victim. And those normal steps in a typical situation of wrong done would be mitigated and changed in ways to provide care and demonstrate the love of Jesus for everyone involved. So we have to handle every situation with wisdom and care. Reconciliation is an urgent matter. But we need to be patient and deliberate and appropriately measured given whatever situation that we are in. So the heart has to change. The priority is so clear. And the urgency is there. So let's then... Think about some points of application as we try to draw toward an end. I'm going to spend a little time on this, though. 
Far too often, I think, churches can sideline the very points that Jesus is making here. It's true, we can. We can let relationships become secondary when in fact Jesus says they are primary. We can let numbers and success and big events and other functions of the church eclipse the central work of being a community of people that embody the gospel in our relationships with one another that are reconciled. We are going to deal with sin. It's inevitable. And sin is going to fracture our relationships. But the primary work of the people of God is to work on those relationships so that we might maintain our witness as a people of God who embody the gospel. It is never secondary. It is always primary. And it's mission critical to Jesus. So much so that I wonder sometimes if if Jesus would walk into churches and say, look, you guys need to stop what you're doing right now. You need to stop this service. You need to stop this committee meeting. You need to stop this prayer gathering because there's stuff that hasn't been dealt with here. And I care so much about that. I'm taking a little bit of license there, I know. But I think that the priority that Jesus is communicating with here suggests that, right? Leave your gift there. Stop it. Because the the wheels are continuing to turn, but at this point, it's just activity. Followed by activity. Followed by activity because the core has been lost. And and, and he loves us too much to want us to continue on in that way. He, He loves his own glory too much to want us to continue on in that way. This matters to him. And so he he comes in to say, please deal with these things as matters of first importance with great priority and urgency. And do not brush them under the rug. Do not sweep them under the rug. Every time that we squelch a brother or sister in the name of things just must go on, we do violence to the witness of God's people to his kingdom and his glory. And it's, it matters to him. So how then might, might we practice this with one another? How, how might we be reconciled? And let me start by saying two things that we don't do. One is that when we remember at the altar that our brother has something against us, we don't grab someone in the hallway or on the sidewalk or in the parking garage and tell them how ridiculous it is that this person has something against us. We don't whisper about it with our friends and build a coalition of support for our point of view before we go and talk and directly deal with our brother or our sister. And I know we're all really good at this. We can excuse a lot of out of bounds stuff in this under the guise of asking for prayer. Or I just need you to support me in this. We can and we all do it. And we need to let Jesus' words call us back. So we don't do that. We go to the person directly. And we go as a beloved child of God and as a humbled sinner to a beloved child of God who is also a humbled sinner to make matters right. So we don't whisper. We also don't achieve reconciliation by saying, hey, let's just forget the past and forgive and move on without ever dealing with the real issues. We like to try this strategy, and it is true that there's some godliness around this kind of idea. Love does, in fact, cover a multitude of sins. And, of course, we must approach these situations with humility, with the log in our own eye very clear. But it is also true that sometimes ongoing unforgiveness and suspicion and broken relationship can flourish underneath the guise of pious-sounding forgiveness and love language. We are called, brothers and sisters, to walk in the light as he is in the light. And when we walk in the light, we are always a people of truth. 
And this matters when it comes to these topics of reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. We must have the truth. We must see the truth. We must know the truth. Is it any wonder that the commission that was authorized by Nelson Mandela and chaired by Desmond Tutu in the rebuilding of South Africa after apartheid was called what? The Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Similarly, in, in Rwanda, post-1994 genocide, when they set up the gachacha courts throughout the villages of Rwanda, it was always with, the, with the, the purpose of perpetrators and victims being able to come together in a communal setting to speak the truth about what had been done. We must speak the truth about how we have wronged our brother or how our brother has wronged us. And we are not to name that truth in anger as those who are seeking to tear down our brother or sister for whom Christ died, but we do this as forgiven sinners who are commanded to speak the truth in love to one another as a means of pursuing right relationships with one another in Christ. And here's the beautiful thing is we don't have to be afraid. I think I said this last week or the week before, but we don't have to be afraid of the truth because we're deeply loved and can be loved in no greater way. And because the person who has harmed us or that we have harmed is deeply loved. And because we're deeply forgiven in the cross. True reconciliation then necessitates identifying and being honest about the wrong done. It must be clear and spelled out and named and owned. If your brother has something against you, then you must hear it and understand it and comprehend it before reconciliation can genuinely take place. Forgiveness, which we'll examine further next week, is commanded by God and is a, a reality that we are commanded to do independent of the remorse or repentance of the one who has committed the wrong. It can stand alone. But reconciliation cannot be achieved outside of the relational context that necessitates naming, owning, and acknowledging sin or grievances which have broken the relationship. So the offended party must be able to name what he or she has done. The offending party must be able to acknowledge that it's been owned and apologized for. And then to be able to show and demonstrate the forgiveness that has been granted in Christ. And we need to slow down in these matters. It doesn't do us any good, even though I've talked about urgency, to, to just rush through. We need to walk through these processes with one another well. Sometimes there's disagreements about the offense and I would just say in that case let's keep working at it together let's keep working let's preferably invite other parties other members of the body of Christ to come in and the, that we've agreed upon to help us sort these things through together what we can't do is cut off another person we can't be the eye saying to the hand I have no need of you we stay in the process I want to charge us and say, let's help one another do this work together. We must be brave and courageous in our dealing with these matters. We cannot, as followers of Jesus, be content with dysfunction and brokenness that are so common in relationships in the body of Christ. We need each other desperately to remind one another of the priority and urgency of what Jesus teaches here to remind each other that we must be willing to stop our religious activities and to leave our gifts at the altar and to make our relationships one of the big deals of the whole work of God's kingdom because that's what Jesus says they are. Is there suspicion, lack of trust, 
accusations of dishonesty, wrongdoing, disrespect, politicking, and power playing, then I say, let's be honest about it with one another. And let's deal with it humbly and graciously as brothers and sisters in Christ. To do anything less, to turn a deaf ear to such matters, is to, is to turn a deaf ear to our King and Savior Jesus and to jeopardize our witness to the gospel and to invite unhealth to have a seat at the center of our table. Let me say, I know this is really hard. I know that there's not one of us in this room, myself included, who enjoys this kind of thing. I think that's why Jesus spoke this way to us. Because he knew it wasn't fun. Because he knew it was hard. Because he knew it challenges our, challenged our, our sense of identity and our security in his love. Because he knows that it challenges our fear of one another. It's really hard. And it's not easy. And I'm not saying all that I'm saying here out of Matthew 5 to, to say that, well, you know, come on, can't we just... I mean, this is challenging work. But it is the work to which we are called as his body. And it is good and central and priority work and urgent work that we are called to do. I'm asking each of us this morning to take stock of our relationships with one another in this body of Christ and to be willing to commit to the hard and challenging work of reconciliation together. I believe wholeheartedly that God will honor this and that God will be honored through this. It is his power and his power alone that will enable us to walk into this together. So as beloved children and as forgiven sinners, let's do take stock and make reconciliation our top, one of our top priorities, both now and always. Does someone come to mind? I'm not going to ask you to blurt it out loud. Are there brothers and sisters with whom you need to sit down and have a conversation whom you have grieved or who have grieved you. I'll close with this. If we long as we do for revival in this city, if we long for a fresh wind of the spirit to blow upon his church and through his church to spill over into the city of Boston, if we long for Jesus to be exalted above everything else in our city and for people to know the depth of his grace and mercy and love for them and to come to life, if we long for God to continue his work in us and through us, then we'll take this calling to right relationships soberly. And we'll take the priority of this and the urgency of this humbly. And we'll enter into it together with hope. It will be slow. It will always be slow. And it will never not be there. Because sin will always be a thing that we wrestle with. It will be slow, but it will be good. It is good. So take heart as beloved children. Take heart as forgiven sinners who have nothing to fear. And first, and leave your gift at the altar and go, go, maybe today, and be reconciled with your brother. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help in these areas. 
We thank you for Jesus and for his straight talk to us in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and empower us, that you would give us humility and grace, that you would take away any heart of anger that exists in this room right now and replace it with a heart of love. And we pray that you would help us to make as big a deal of our relationships as you have. For your glory, for your honor, for your praise. We pray this in your name. Amen.